what I'd like for you to do is open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Leave it open there. And I want to us to take a look at one of my favorite scenes. Joshua chapter 10, beginning with verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Mareda. And it came about that as they fled before Israel, while they were still in the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged, avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The, moon, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Father in heaven, I do pray that we will understand your words. That we'll look once again at this familiar passage and see how you want it, you want to apply it to our own lives. And I thank you, Lord, for the power of your spirit to bring it home to right where we are right now. For I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua is an exciting book. Maybe that's why I'm attracted back to it time and time again. And there can be no more exciting scene than the scene of this battle. Maybe you remember the background of this particular story and, and how it came about. You might remember that it is actually a battle that Joshua had not planned to fight. The people that he goes up to, uh, to defend are the people of Gibeon. And if you remember from reading Joshua, the people of Gibeon, are those uh, native people that deceived Joshua and the people of Israel. Remember, they had come dressed in old ragged clothes with worn-out shoes and moldy food, and they had told Joshua, we have come from a long, distant place, and we want to make peace with you. And Joshua, without consulting the Lord, decided, well, that sounds fine, they're way out of the way anyway. And he made peace with them, only to find out that they just lived around the corner and over the hill. But they had put on these costumes in order to deceive Israel. But Joshua had given his word. And so now the, na the nations around the Amorites and the Canaanites and all of the otherites that are gathered around there in the promised land, they are upset and mad at these Gibeonites 
and decide to attack them for making peace with Israel. So suddenly the men of of Gibeon call out to Joshua, come up and defend us like you promised. We're partners now. So Joshua is about to set forth on that battle. And before we get into that verse by verse, we have to look at that highlight, that, that scene that is so startling, where a battle is taking place and the armies clash. And uh, it, it's one of those stormy days, I presume, because we have hailstorm uh, stones coming down. I see a day where the black clouds blow for a while and the sun peeks through and the clouds crash together and the lightning flashes and the hailstones come down and the sun breaks back out again and the armies are, are hand in hand and Joshua looks around and knows if he can just keep this intensity of battle, he can defeat the Amorites of the Gap. All Joshua needs at this moment is a very long day. He doesn't like to see that sun going down. And so in the presence of all Israel, he calls out, Sun, stand still. And the sun stands still. It's a dramatic scene. Funny how skeptics can turn things around. The first thing a skeptic says is, well, obviously there are errors in the Bible. The sun doesn't stand still. He should have yelled out what? Earth, stop rotating. Because our modern science says, indeed, the earth rotates. But of course, the Bible is completely true because it speaks phenomenologically. Don't ask me to say that again. The Bible speaks as we see the earth because that way it can speak to every generation. Were you by the lake tonight? You weren't because you were in here, but just a few minutes ago, if we would have been down there standing by the lake, we could have watched what? The sun? No, no, we could have watched the earth rotate. You ever asked your wife, honey, let's go watch the earth rotate? You say, let's go watch the sun set. That's what it seems to our eyes. That's what it seems to the eyes of the Israelis. That's what it seems to everybody's eyes. So that's why the Bible speaks that way. Joshua calls out, sun. Stand still. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never in my life seen power like that. In fact, the scriptures say that's that's never happened like that. I I think that would be the most phenomenal thing I can imagine coming from a mere mortal human like Joshua. Son, stand still. In fact, compared to that, most of us look like spiritual wimps, don't we, when it comes to power. And I have a feeling as we study through the book, these, these verses in Joshua tonight, we can learn a lot about spiritual power and maybe how to cure us from being spiritual wimps. Now, we all know the text of Acts 1.8, and it tells us that Jesus said, you and I shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. But most of us spend our entire adult life still in the upper room waiting for power. Jesus said we could move mountains and you and I have trouble moving our bodies out of bed on Sunday morning. Jesus stilled the storm and we can't still the kids. Elijah called down fire from heaven and we're lucky to get the charcoal barbecue going in a half hour. 
Moses crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and we think we had a good day if we can get across the street in front of the mall. Peter spoke, and the lame man went dancing and leaping. We speak, and people fall asleep. Paul commanded the demons to flee, and we can't scare a stray dog out of the yard. But we know it shouldn't be that way. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Right here, I think, in Joshua chapter 10, is that short course for spiritual wimps. And if you've got a notepad, you can write down one through five. And number one, we begin to see the problem. Joshua has a problem. The problem was based, as I mentioned before, on a hastily given promise, but even hastily given promises have to be kept. The problem was the people of Gibeon were being attacked by the Amorites, and Joshua had promised to fight alongside of them. Now, even though that promise wasn't from the Lord, it was Joshua's word, and he had to uphold his word. You see, there is integrity demanded of us no matter what the level of wisdom. Hopefully, we will be more wise. And the problems that come in our life are based on holiness rather than on hastily given promises. But holiness brings problems and conflicts. Daniel's commitment to holiness brought conflicts in his life when he wouldn't bow before an image of the king. Elijah's commitment to holiness brought the wrath of Jezebel and Ahab against him as he fled and hid in the cave. John the Baptist's commitment to holiness meant that he called out the sin of Herod and was thrown into prison for it. Holiness brings conflicts, brings problems. Remember, you don't need power to coast. Maybe the reason some of our lives don't have much power is because we haven't been in many problems. And you don't need any power going downhill. But when the problem comes, we need power. And there are a lot of problems around us. When do you feel spiritually weak? I remember one time I felt spiritually weak. I took a class. I was an ag major for two years, and then I was in on the ranch for uh, six years. And after that, when I was called to go back in the ministry, I was told I needed a college degree to get into seminary. And so they said, it didn't matter what kind of degree. Get any kind of degree you want, but you have to have a degree. So I went back to college, and I said, what major can I take and transfer 64 ag units without losing any of them and get through college as quick as possible? So they handed me a catalog, and I started in at the front. Art? No. Architecture? No. Right down the line. The only one that would transfer all 64 units was philosophy. So I majored in philosophy the last two years. Sort of an ag-philosophy combination. In my first philosophy class, we marched into something called uh, basic moral issues. It's a great class. I came in, the teacher came up front, The first day, first words out of his mouth. (sighs) Well, let's get this over with right at first. How many of you believe in God? (sighs) A few of us raised our hand. We spent six weeks 
shooting down those few people that raised hands. By the end of six weeks, my hand was the only one still raised. I felt like a spiritual wimp. What can I do? I had no power at that moment. You ever been in a meeting? Maybe it's a church meeting, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting. You're sharing prayer requests. And a family gets up maybe new in town. You don't really know them, but they have a real burden. They're in tears. And they're sharing about a sudden, extremely serious illness in their little nine-year-old son. And the pastor turns to you and says, Steve, would you pray for them? Yes. Me? I don't know what to say. I don't have any power. I need somebody spiritually strong to pray in that kind of situation. Maybe like I shared with you that one one morning this week, you're in a situation like Jan and I are in often where we're counseling other people and we're talking about their marriage relationships and the marriage is struggling and we give them advice and we pray with them and we cry with them and we stay up with them and we stick with them year after year after year after year. And then they get a divorce and go their separate ways. And you just feel like you have no power. You and I have problems like that from time to time. That's where power begins. It begins with a problem. Joshua had a problem. The combined forces of the Amorites are now attacking the Gibeonites, and it's up to him to do something about it. But he had more than just a problem. He had something better. Number two is he had a promise. See in verse 8, The Lord said, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Where there is a problem in our life, God will be able to bring us a promise. You notice the first thing that the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. That's a natural reaction when we feel spiritually weak is to be afraid. Joshua was afraid. God said, do not fear. Fear is the greatest enemy in leading a powerful Christian life because fear forces us to turn in and think only of ourselves. Fear says, well, you're going to fail. Fear fear says you're going to look foolish. Fear says God might just not follow through. Isn't that a great fear we have? We seldom talk about that fear. But we say, if I do something, what if God isn't really in this? What if he doesn't really follow through? Sometimes I think the prime message Jesus had in the New Testament was fear not. He said, do not fear leaders who put you down in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. He said, do not fear those who can kill only the body in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said, do not fear the Lord's presence among us. He said, do not fear to be a disciple, calling others to follow Christ. He said, do not be afraid of the resurrected Jesus. He said, do not be afraid of my deity. He said, do not be afraid of trusting your loved ones to the Lord. Do not be afraid to seek first the kingdom of God. Over and over, Jesus comes to us and says, don't be afraid. So our first reaction in that problem is to be afraid. He says, do not fear. Then he follows up with a promise. To Joshua, he said, don't worry. I have given them into your hands. 
He's given you and me some promises too. They're found in Scripture. All sorts of promises, like in the world there will be tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Or he has given us that promise, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come, but if I go, I will send him to you. The promise. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That's the promise. He said, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's the promise. He said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise. When you and I find ourselves in that problem and we feel like we are completely out of power, the Lord's going to come and say, do not fear. And he's going to bring those promises to us. Now, there's an interesting thing in verse 9, because I think that's the third point, and that's Joshua's prompting that takes place. Verse 9, you might have overlooked that. seems insignificant. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. God had just promised total victory. So what does Joshua do? Does he go to the troops and say, don't worry, fellas, there's nothing to this. No, he goes to the troop and he says, troops, we're going to march uphill 25 miles in the dead of night. Joshua is pushing his troops to the limits of strength. He's not holding anything back. Some of us tend to think, well, God has his promise here and I'm just going to set and wait for the promise to happen. But there are some times, at least, when God wants us to do more than just sit. He's given us the promise, but he inspired Joshua to push those men uphill. I don't know if you've gone full armor uphill, some uh, uh, 2,000 feet elevation of a climb, 25 miles in the dark of night or not, but that's a tough hike. Joshua pushes to the limits of body and mind. The powerful life is never an easy life. You say, well, that Moses, he was powerful. You think that was easy? Remember Moses' life? His father-in-law came and said, what? Moses, you're working too hard. You're up early in the morning. You're working till late at night. You're about worn out. The powerful life is not an easy life. You read in the New Testament about what Paul went through. He gives that list, that chronicle of events, how many times he was beaten, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times that he was left for dead, the struggles that he has gone through. You think it's easy to live a powerful life? The scriptures never show that. Joshua prompted the people to the limits of their physical strength. I was thinking about that recently. And I was thinking, trying to think through my life and in just the last few weeks and months, maybe the most powerful time that I have had. And I've had the opportunity to do a lot of speaking in the last few months. And uh, I believe the most powerful speaking I've done this year came uh, in the end of May at a men's conference in Southerton, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> Christian Service Brigade had a fathering conference and they gathered a couple hundred men there and I was to be their speaker. And uh, it was exciting to get to go and speak to men. 
So I got up on a Friday morning and at four o'clock in the morning so I could drive down the hill from Winchester to uh, an hour to the airport where I get a commuter plane. And I got on a commuter plane and flew to Seattle. I was scheduled to get into Philadelphia airport. Uh, it was going to take me clear to eight o'clock at night to get there, but the meeting was nine o'clock Saturday morning, no problem. And I flew over to Seattle and uh, waited and waited and changed planes. We got in my United uh, airplane to fly to Philadelphia, but there was one stop at O'Hare in Chicago. As we're getting close to Chicago sometime in the afternoon, after the movie and the meal that tastes just like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we were flying into Chicago. They said, I'm sorry, all the runways in Chicago are closed, but one, we're going to have to fly you to Detroit because the plane is running out of fuel. So I spent three hours in the Detroit airport. They said, finally, and at Detroit, I called the man waiting in Philadelphia, said, I'm, I'm not going to get in at the same time I said. It's going to be about three hours later. Well, three hours later, we flew back to Chicago and still couldn't land, so we had a lot of fuel. We just circled for another hour, then we landed. By the time I got there, they said, of course, the plane, the, the plane to Philadelphia is gone, but we have scheduled you on another one at 10.30. So I called my friend back in Philadelphia. I said, I'm not going to be there when I said. I'm going to be there on a 10.30 flight from Chicago. At 10.30, the announcement came on and said, we are not uh, going to leave at 10.30. We're going to have to leave at 11.30. I didn't call him back. I figured he could wait another hour. At 11.30, the stewardess came and they were smiling, ready to board the plane, and the announcement came. We have decided to cancel the flight. Even though there were 200 people sitting there waiting for it, the pilots didn't want to fly. They had already put in enough hours sitting around, and uh, there would be too many hours flying to uh, Philadelphia, and we don't have time for another crew. But don't worry, they said, we'll put you up in the hotel and fly you to Philadelphia tomorrow morning at 10.30 which didn't do me much good since I had to speak at 9.15. The program started at 9, but I wasn't on until 9.15. I was talking all day long. So I'm sitting at the customer service counter saying, I have to get to Philadelphia. She said, there's no way. I said, what do you mean there's no way? I said, I've got to get there. She said, well, there are no flights to Philadelphia this time of the night. It's 11.30. And uh, 11.30 in uh, Chicago is what? 12.30 in Philadelphia. She said, there's no no way. I said, well, fly me someplace else. Fly me to Baltimore. Fly me to D.C. Fly me someplace on the East Coast and I'll get to Philadelphia. We can't. There are no flights at this hour any place to the East Coast. I said, I've got to get there. She said, there are no flights. I said, as I came running across here to customer service, there was a flight to Boston. She said, yes, but that's already left. I said, it was still there when I ran across. She said, well, I'll check. She got on the line and she said, well, there is one seat if you hurry. So I ran across with my ticket to Philadelphia and said, can I get on that flight to Boston? The lady said, yes, would you close all the doors behind you, please? So I ran down there closing the doors, run down, close the door, run down, close the door. I look around to find the one seat. I found it. I sit down. The plane takes off and I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be in Philadelphia. What am I going to do in Boston? But they have telephones on planes now. So I made a phone call. And sure enough, U.S. Air flies an early morning shuttle from Boston to Philadelphia. 
Uh, you can buy your ticket at 5.30 in the morning. And the plane leaves about 6.30, it gets to Philadelphia at 8, and it's an hour drive out to Southerton, or an hour and a half, they told me. So I said, well, that's cutting it close. But I couldn't go to sleep at Logan Field because I would sleep past 5.30 and didn't buy my ticket. So I sat up all night, me and a passed-out soldier. We're the only two in the terminal all night long. And uh, I waited. I bought the ticket. I got on the plane. I flew down to Philadelphia. A man wait, was waiting for me. My luggage, you see, I don't know where my luggage is. I'm still wearing the same clothes I put on at 4 o'clock the day before in the morning in Winchester. Uh, no change shirt, shoes, or shower. A man's waiting for me. He says, well, we can get there pretty close. It takes an hour and a half. But somehow, even driving the speed limit, he made it in 55 minutes. And I drove up to Southerton at 5 minutes to 9. And I started speaking at 15 after 9, still wearing the same thing for 30 hours that it had taken me to get there. It was the most powerful speaking I had done. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about... <laughs> but I think I know the reason. You see, you've got to march all night uphill sometimes on your own strength. God expects you to push yourself to the limit. Push yourself to the limit first. There's a problem that comes along and God brings us a promise. And then we have to prompt others or maybe ourselves in such a way to push to the total end of those physical limits before we're ready for that power. But the fourth thing we need to remember here is before that powerful scene, we realize God's providence is at work. Verses 10 and 11. Did you notice there that it says, the Lord confused them and slew them with a great slaughter. And the hailstones came down and actually killed more than the armies. God entered the battle in His own timing and with His own methods. He doesn't intend us to fight the battle all alone. In times when we have that problem thrust upon us because of our own holiness, because of our obedience to Scripture, because of our personal integrity, we have those problems that we have pushed ourselves to the limit and we're hanging on to God's promises. He enters the battle. Now, some people, again, can talk about, well, isn't this amazing coincidence? The Bible doesn't say it's a coincidence. It doesn't say, well, the people were confounded because they were surprised to see Joshua. The Bible says the Lord confounded the people. And again, you can say, isn't that an amazing hailstorm? Just happened to hit right when Joshua needed. Yeah, it's an amazing hailstorm. It's sort of a bigoted hailstorm. Did you notice? It only strikes Amorites. It doesn't strike Israelis. God entered the battle. That's the exciting part. We don't have to fight it alone. He enters at his own time and with his own methods, but he enters the battle. No lucky break here at all. It's providence. You think it was a bad year for frogs in Egypt when Moses was there? Or a landslide that stopped the Jericho when it stopped the Jordan when Joshua marched across? Or it was just a lucky earthquake about the walls of Jericho? You think it was just chance lightning that struck Elijah's altar? You think it was a lucky shot David had when he threw that rock at Goliath? 
God's providential hand in our lives. He enters the battle. The sixth thing, then building up to this great scene of power, is the, or the fifth thing is the proclamation. Joshua demonstrates exclusive focus on God's desired result. You think I, I really think this is one of the reasons for this powerful scene is that Joshua is so overcome with accomplishing what he knows God wants to accomplish. God had told him, you're going to go up and you're going to slay all of these people. God has brought judgment upon this nation. And he's going to use Joshua's hand to carry out that judgment. Joshua knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't defeating this these Amorites for his own glory and honor. He was in the midst of God's battle, accomplishing God's result when he had that proclamation, Son, stand thou still. He did what had never been done again. I have a feeling that he did it as a holy reaction rather than as a planned response. I have a feeling that most acts of power are holy reactions in the midst of a spiritual battle. I don't think Joshua told his army leaders, look, here's the plan. We're going to march up the hill. We're going to surround them. The Lord's going to send hailstones. And then in the middle of the day, I'll stop the sun and we'll finish the battle. I don't think the thought ever entered his mind once until the moment he looked up at the sun and said, son, stand thou still. It's a holy reaction in the midst of a spiritual battle. Remember that demon-possessed girl that followed Paul and Silas around in Philippi, shouting out, these men are our spokesmen of the holy God. She kept screaming it and yelling it out till day after day until Paul couldn't get any ministry done in Philippi. And then in the middle of that spiritual battle between Satan and God, there was a holy reaction. Paul turned around, cast the demon out. I think Paul had to think about it a long time, didn't have to plan it ahead of time. Those kinds of acts of power come as holy reactions in the midst of a spiritual battle. You see, we receive power when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We use that power whenever we preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. We also can have power in the midst of spiritual battles when we call out for God's help. Spiritual wimps. Sometimes that includes you and me. How can we have a more powerful Christian life? Well, we don't need to look for problems, but we can let our personal integrity and our obedience to God's Word lead us into problems. Then we can take our fears to the Lord because the first thing real problems do are make us afraid. And we can spend some time reviewing God's promises. And then I think God wants us to push our human strength and wisdom to the extreme. I'm not sure lazy Christians ever lead a powerful life. Then we need to recognize God's hand when He enters the battle and give Him glory. And then with abandon, pursue God's desired result. 
never hesitating to call for his direct intervention, which is exactly what we call power. Am I saying that uh, maybe the day will come when you or I are in that situation where we do something so dramatic as command the suns to stand still? Am I hinting that uh, you and I might be in a spot where we call down that fire from heaven? Am I suggesting that we might be the ones in the lion's den when all the mouths are closed and we escape unharmed? Am I proposing that we slip our feet over the edge of the boat and try walking on the water? Am I daring to say the day will come when you and I can proclaim the gospel and people are really saved? Am I saying the day will come when we can stand up in that beginning philosophy class and confute the wisdom of the world? Am I saying we'll be able to open our mouths in that prayer meeting and pray for God's healing to take place in the life of someone who's hurting? Am I saying that you and I don't have to spend the rest of our lives being spiritual wimps? Yep, that's what I'm saying. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know that power is a deceptive thing. Deceptive because we can want it for our own use and our own glory. And Father, once that's happened, it's all ruined. But Father, we are here and the battle is raging all around us. And when... Lord, we look at a real newspaper, we see all sorts of spiritual battles going on with wickedness in worldly places. And Lord, we feel overwhelmed. How can we respond? How can we stop the tide? How can we stand against immorality? How can we present biblical views? We feel powerless. Father, help us to march back through time and see the battle of Joshua. To feel the excitement of that long day when the sun stood still. Help us to realize that your power is with us still to defeat the enemy. Lord, most of our battles aren't as dramatic as Joshua's. But our need for power is just as real. And we'd ask it to accomplish your goals, and to bring you glory. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.